Gentlemen, happy Ladies' Day, Mother's Day. We sit in the midst of greatness. Women, you can say amen to that. That's you, okay? That's, that's a great, great day when we get to lavish and love on the women in our lives. My mom's been gone about seven years, almost eight years now. So I get to pour all of my Mother's Day attention on my wife and mother of my children. Um, I was talking to a guy a few years ago, and I was like three days in advance of Mother's Day. And I said to him, so w- what are you doing for your wife for Mother's Day? And his response to me was, uh, oh, she's not my mom. Not the answer you want to give, okay? <laughs> Guys, just don't be that guy this morning, okay? Um, we, we, we just celebrate you, ladies. We're so grateful for you. Um, I can't take you all out to dinner like I'd like to do, so we have flowers for you after the service, and the best, the best gift I can give you is just really solid Bible teaching, so that's what I'm going to do for you this morning. If you take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 8, you'll be where I'm at. Um, if you're new to New Hope or if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we've been working through the book of Acts. You'll find uh, Bibles in the racks around you that might help you to follow along. Maybe, maybe you've got it on your iPad or on your phone this morning. You can read along that way. But you'll also see the verses up on the screen. If you don't own a Bible this morning, there's free ones in the back. You can take one with you when you leave this morning. Love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. So here's what's going on. After we, last week, we finished off by setting this land speed record. We worked through 60 verses, all of chapter 7. And today we're going to slow it down. But where we ended was we saw this amazing image that Stephen described of Jesus standing in heaven. He wasn't seated. He was standing. And if you were here last week, you remember part of the description around that, seeing Jesus at the throne of God, standing as the intercessor, and representing, in, in, in other words, we would say it that way today in our language, it, re- literally representing those who believe in him. And so Stephen looks, he sees Jesus standing, and he's about to die because he's being stoned. So here's the amazing contrast. Stephen's caught up in this hail of rocks flying past him. He's been condemned for announcing who Jesus is. And yet God opens up heaven and allows him to see him. Let me take you back to where we left off last week. Chapter 7, you'll see it on the screen, verse 58. It says, The witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord. So there's this flail of rocks going past him. We learned in that passage that he's literally praying for their forgiveness. And the only way that God can forgive sin is by understanding who Jesus is and having salvation. So Stephen is literally praying for salvation for the people who are killing him. In that moment, we're also told there's a bigger picture going on. It's not just about Stephen. There's something else. There's a young man mentioned who's standing in the forefront. He literally got a seat up front. means he's in on the action. He's part of the entire wicked situation. And people have laid their clothes at his feet. So in the first century, when an individual had been condemned, and it's a capital punishment situation, when they're going to stone them, they literally took off their outer garments and put them down so they could really wind up their arms, so they could throw hard. And that's where you see Saul in this setting. He's introduced right here as Saul. He hasn't been named Paul yet, hasn't met Jesus yet. He's a Greek-speaking Jew. means he wasn't born in Jerusalem He's from the northern regions outside of Israel, and he was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and his dad moved him down to Jerusalem. He probably debated with Stephen, and no doubt he heard him in the Supreme Court. 
He certainly is part of the stoning. Ultimately, what we discover about Saul is Stephen's death had a profound impact on Paul. You can read about that in Acts 22. Augustine summarized it this way. He said back in 390 A.D., if Stephen had not prayed, the church would not have had Paul. Interesting observation. Stephen's being killed. He's praying for those who are killing him. God finds Saul and leads him to faith in Christ and changes his name to Paul. What we're coming into in Acts chapter 8 is a turning point. A huge turning point in the story. If you've been here along the way, you've seen that Acts chapter 1 through 7 has been all about Jerusalem, all about the first church that started and got launched. But by the time you get to end of Acts chapter 7, Jerusalem begins to fade into the background. And these other regions, as you're going to learn about this morning, called Samaria, begin to become more prominent. Let's go to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. It says this, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. I get to use the word megas three times today. I'm pretty excited about that. And and the first one comes out of this passage right here where it says a great persecution. I don't want to use the the word megas for a positive reason. There's persecution, but it's megas persecution, meaning it's incredibly intense. There's a grenade that's been detonated, and it's the murder of Stephen because the passage says on the day that Stephen died, this megas persecution broke out. Now, to this point... The persecution has been against the leaders of the church, the the 12 apostles. They've taken the brunt of the persecution. Now it's gone after the church body. And as a result, it's going to scatter the church. So what we've been studying over the last couple weeks is that as Satan has ramped up the persecution, he's trying to stomp out the fire of the church. It's just scattering the embers. And now we see them scattered abroad beyond Jerusalem. The fire is catching on. So what seems negative at first is really actually positive. Uh, In verse 2, it says they were all scattered abroad. All doesn't mean every person in the church. It it means a very great number of them, but the church in Jerusalem continued to exist. Who was scattered then? Well, the Greek-speaking Jews. We talked about this the last couple weeks. Individuals who came to faith in Jesus, who weren't necessarily born in Jerusalem, they speak another language, they discovered who Jesus is, they're still living in Jerusalem, and now the persecution breaks out. Uh, Verse 2 ends by saying they made loud lamentation over Stephen. What you're seeing there is those who are burying Stephen are breaking the law. Because the law, the Mishnah, which was an oral tradition of the Israelites, said that you cannot make mourning or lamentation over an accused criminal. And there they are, making loud lamentation. In other words, it's a public protest to what's happened with Stephen's death. So that kind of sets us up for verse 3 when we find more about Saul. Verse 3 says this, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So he's armed with authority. And the authority has been given to him by the high priest of the Jewish synagogues. And he's entering into houses and he's searching for Christians, dragging men and women, no discrimination whatsoever, and he's not content merely to harass them. I mean, they've already killed Jesus. They've executed Stephen. 
Why stop there? The ball is already rolling. So he's really going to ramp it up. As a matter of fact, Paul, later in Acts 26, looking back on this period of time, says this about himself, Acts 26, 11, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities, meaning he left Israel. He went to other nations looking for the Christians so he could kill them. He's so warped in his thinking at this point, he thinks he's serving God by executing believers. What Jesus said that was going to happen in John 16, he said there's going to come a period of time when individuals are going to kill you thinking they're doing a service to God. Because you represent me, they're going to try and execute you. So Saul is like a 2015 version of ISIS. We're looking at an individual who's trying to execute believers because of what they say they believe. So this word ravaging in verse 3 is really, really strong language. I put it in your notes this morning, the the Greek word, but you'll also see it up on the screen. And this word means literally to wreak havoc. And it's always used of an animal, like when a lion attacks its prey or a cougar attacks a deer and it begins ripping it apart wreaking havoc, making filth of is the way that this word is used here. So make no mistake, the persecution that's going on is absolutely devastating. Saul is literally ripping the church apart. But we understand what's going on here. Bigger picture, there's a scattering, and God is using the evil actions of men to accomplish His purposes. Verse 4 says this, Therefore, those who had been scattered went abroad preaching the word. See, you don't find the believers in the New Testament hiding in a bunker. They're not quivering in fear. They're not hiding out, afraid of what's going to happen to them. So what's going on with Satan is the persecution that he's cultivating is the very thing that's causing the church to flourish. He's cultivating the very thing he's trying to destroy. The word scattered that's used there is diasperio. And it talks about scattering seed. Earlier this week, I was putting grass seed down in our yard. We've got a few bare spots where we had to have some new grass grow in. And so I'm throwing the grass seed down. A big wind comes, and it catches the seed and blows it off. Didn't intend for it to do that. But what it actually did is it caused the seed to go to places that I wasn't looking for. That's the way diasperio is used here. When something is scattered, it's scattering the seed out. What's happening as a result of it? They're preaching the Word. Now, you might be thinking of preaching like street preaching, like, wow, these people are really bold. They're standing on street corners talking. The way that it's used here, the word evangelize or evangelizo, is actually just conversational talking about Jesus, meaning like in the airports, in the restaurant, in the office, in the school. People are talking about who Jesus is out on the golf course. They're going fishing. They're talking about Jesus. Verse 5 becomes really, really pivotal in the story. Go with me to verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, if you've ever read the list of the 12 apostles, there's a Philip there. This is not the Philip. There's two different Philips. There's a Philip who's part of the 12 apostles. There's a Philip who was chosen to serve tables. You learned about that a couple weeks ago. That's this Philip. He's one of the seven who's a Greek-speaking Christian. So we're told in verse 5, Philip went down. Now, how many of you here were, were born in the north country? You're born in Michigan, perhaps. Most of us, okay, good, good number of us, not all of us. Many of us, when we think of going down, we immediately think of going south, right? So when we say we're going down someplace, we're saying south, I'm going up, we're going up north. That's not the way it's used in the Bible. When it says he's going down into the city of Samaria, it means Jerusalem's on a high plateau. It's at an elevated uh, uh, 
level, and so to go down means he's leaving Jerusalem. He's actually going north, about 40 miles north, into this area known as Samaria. So God leads Philip, this Greek-speaking Christian, into a place where the disciples had previously been prohibited to go. Let me help you understand Samaria. Samaria was originally part of Israel. Israel was one entire nation, and then there was civil war, and it was divided into the north and the south, much like the civil war here in the United States. The tribes, the northern tribes, began serving idols, and they were rejecting God. So God sent an army from Assyria, where we call today modern-day Syria, in to conquer northern Israel. They hauled away the tribes, the Jews that were living in northern Israel, and they replaced them with Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people. And those individuals began intermarrying with the Jews. They became known as half-breed Jews. The word that we're using here is Samaria, Samaritans. Now understand this. The Samaritans openly opposed any form of socializing with the Jews and vice versa. The Jews of Israel hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. They wanted nothing to do with each other. So there's this intense hostility. You see some of it coming out when Jesus is at the well. Maybe you remember the story in John chapter 4. Jesus goes for a drink of water, and a woman walks up to him from Samaria, and he begins talking to her. And she says, like, what is up? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Samaritans don't talk to Jews. Why are you having a conversation with me? Well, you see part of that also coming out when the disciples went into Samaria and they found a lot of hostility. So that was the ultimate insult to call somebody a Samaritan if they weren't. You see that come out in a conversation that Jesus had with some leaders of the Jewish faith, the Pharisees. They're, they're, well, let me show it to you on the screen, John eight forty eight. This is the Pharisees speaking to Jesus. They said, aren't we correct in saying that you are a Samaritan? and are possessed by a demon? Now, in their vernacular, they would say it like this. Aren't we correct in saying, you're a Samaritan? And by the way, you're demon-possessed too? They put it on the same level. They're like, wow, you couldn't be worse. They're trying to insult Jesus. So there's this intense hostility. So let me give you one story to remember about how much the Samaritans and the Jews were opposed. The disciples went with Jesus into Samaria. They went into a village, and Jesus said, hey, will you go see if we can have supper with them and if we can stay for the night in one of their homes? So James and John go into the city. They come back out because they've been rejected. They tell Jesus, we've been rejected. They won't let us come. How about this, Jesus? How about you let us call down fire from heaven and destroy them? We'll bring a nuclear bomb on them. Jesus rebukes them really instantly. He says, you guys, check your heart. Don't you know what kind of spirit you are from? Remember that story as you move forward because it really impacts how you read this. Jesus didn't have that attitude towards Samaritans. So let's jump back into the story. What we find now is a follower of Jesus, Philip, who's bringing the good news of who Jesus is into enemy territory. So verse 5 says, Philip is found proclaiming Christ to them. Back in verse 4, I told you they were preaching, meaning they were having street conversation. They're in the office, in the workplace, talking about Jesus. But this word, proclaiming, that's what I'm doing up here. It's it's the word caruso. It's proclaiming as a herald, somebody who's speaking 
publicly. Ladies, you might think of it this way. If you went to the recent showing of Cinderella, I I went with my wife and daughter, and we watched Cinderella on the screen, but there's a point where the herald of the king comes into a public square, and he stands with a proclamation before the king, of the king, before the people, and he says, hear ye, hear ye, the king is having a ball. Okay, that's Caruso. That's what you find Philip doing, making a public proclamation. So he's the messenger of the king. Now, to reject the message of the messenger is to rebel against the king himself. In this case, God Almighty. So verse 5 becomes incredibly pivotal because you've got two people groups who are opposed to each other, the Jewish Christians and the Samaritan potential Christians whom God is trying to draw together. And we see throughout the book of Acts that God has a plan. He's moving the gospel message from Jerusalem further north into new territory, so he's going to use Philip to be a general contractor. He's going to build a bridge between these two groups. Go with me to verse 6. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. What you're looking at there is widespread revival. A spiritual awakening is taking place. So verse 7 says, Even to the degree that those people who are demon-possessed are being freed of the demons that are controlling them. Now Jesus, when he frequently encountered individuals who had demon possession as a problem in their life, when he cast out the demons, the demons came out screaming, Well, we see the exact same thing going on here in Samaria. Philip's casting out demons. They're screaming as they slash through the air. How creepy would that be, just to hear that kind of thing going on? And so no wonder there's megas joy in the city. There's great joy in the city because Philip's not only announcing the new kingdom, but he's also putting God's power on display. So the people of Samaria are hearing and they're believing and they're being healed of physical disorders, and demonic control is being diminished, and most importantly, they're being set free from sin. Move forward into verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great, and they all from the smallest to greatest were giving attention to him saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic art. So Simon's got this really egotistical view of himself, meaning he really likes himself. I mean, he, he really, really likes himself to the degree that people are associating him with deity. They're actually saying, this man's got the great power of God, and he doesn't stop them from saying it. He just lets them put that on him. But he starts to lose his following. Philip has showed up. Philip's doing things more magnificent than he's doing. Philip's drawing the crowds away. And he sees in Philip this means to even more greatness. Now understand, in first century Samaria, sorcery was commonplace. The practice of witchery and the occults were common. Illegal in Israel common in the northern part of what used to be Israel, now known as Samaria. So he's going on for a long period of time, according to verse 11, doing whatever he has to do. Into that situation, 
God sends Philip talking about Jesus and doing supernatural signs. Go forward with me to verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Do you notice that there's two parts to Philip's teaching? The two things he's sharing with people, the kingdom of God, it says specifically, and the name of Jesus Christ. What's the kingdom of God? That means God's sovereign rule, especially over salvation. God's plan, God's purposes being carried out, meaning God's got a plan. And then he brings in not only the kingdom of God, but then the name of Jesus, meaning all that God's plan is. So he's putting the two pieces together. So let me summarize it for you. Philip's speaking to them about the realm of God, who God is, and his control over everything, and then he zeroes in on the truth about Jesus, that Jesus alone provides access to the realm of God. Now, Simon is caught up in magical arts, but he's no match for the Holy Spirit that's found in Philip. So we have to stop back and step back and ask ourselves a really hard question. It says... Simon himself believed. What does that mean when you read that in this context? We can answer that by asking another question. What is the basis of his faith? The word believed is the word pistuo in the Greek language, and it is used in many different settings. What is Simon believing in? I'm going to play my hand a little bit early because Dr. Luke is about to hit the pause button in Acts chapter 8. I'm I'm going to tell you, I believe his belief is not in Jesus Christ. And it's not necessarily in the Word of God, but it's in the miracles that Philip is performing. Uh, Let me show you that, that, but we'll move forward into verse 14. Luke hits the pause button, stops to Simon's story for just a minute, and tells us this. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that's a theological mouthful. Verse 16, we'll come back to that in just a minute. So when I read that passage, I have to smile. Look with me very closely at that word again at verses 14 and 15, and fill in the blank for me. Verse 14, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and who, church? John, all right. Who's the guy who called for fire from heaven? Okay, he's the one who wanted to torch them, to nuke them, destroy them. And what does God do? God takes John, who now understands who Jesus really is, and sends him back into what would have been known as enemy territory for the purpose of salvation, not for the purpose of destroying them. So it's not too difficult for you and I this morning to imagine what would have happened if the 12 apostles, Jews of Jews, had been the first missionaries into Samaria. They would have been absolutely rejected, just like they were earlier with Jesus. But God's got a plan, right? God's got a purpose to everything he does. And so in his providence, he chooses Philip. Philip is a Greek-speaking Christian. He's not someone who was born in Jerusalem. 
He's one of those who was scattered abroad when the persecution started. So God chooses Philip and sends him into this territory. You ever heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? You could take that and apply that to this situation because the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. The Greeks had been rejected by the Jews. They're both looked down on as second-class citizens by the Jews. So they've got something in common. So they receive Philip, and they receive what he has to say. The Samaritans bring them into their towns. Now, in that context, who better than to send two apostles from Jerusalem into Samaria to validate their faith, whether or not it's real? Now, let me hit my own pause button. I told you Luke hit it in verse 14. Let me do it for just a second. It is not my goal this morning to cause you to think like I think. That'd be very self-serving. So when we come to a very difficult passage like this, we have to be sure that our goal is to clearly see God's hand and to see his heart in this, especially when you come to verse 16 and it says, for the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon these believers. What do we know about Christians today, church? We know that when you profess faith in Jesus Christ, God says he immediately gives you the Holy Spirit. It's the seal it means you belong to him. But why the delay? It's the only place you see it in the New Testament. There's a delay in the giving of the Holy Spirit. How are we to understand this? It definitely affects how you approach the Bible. Well, let me explain it this way. I'm just going to tell you how I'm seeing it. You can land on whether or not you see it this way. The word of the amazing success that Philip is having has reached the apostles back in Jerusalem. And so they decide... We're going to send Peter and John to check this out. The Samaritans are included in the kingdom. They're receiving the good news. How could that be? Is this true? Is this legit? These guys are really coming to Christ? So to see if it is true, what they discover when they send Peter and John is that indeed these people have professed Christ. They have even been baptized into the name of Jesus but they've not had the experience of the Holy Spirit, what we read about in Acts chapter 2. So God has delayed, here in this situation only, the delayed benefit of the Holy Spirit. Why would he do that? I think God's working a plan here. I'll just tell you why I see it this way. You've got a group of Christians in Jerusalem who really don't like the Samaritans. And you've got a group of Samaritans living in the north country who really don't like the Jews, whether they're Christians or not. Civil war has taken place. There's a division. What did Jesus pray for the night before he's crucified? Father, I pray that my church would be one as you and I are one. Just as God the Father and God the Son are unified. He says, I pray that my church would be one. I think God's working a plan here. He's working on the unity of the church. So he withholds the arrival of the Holy Spirit until Peter and John arrive. And when they arrive and they lay hands on these people, something amazing happens. Watch with me in verse 17. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So evidently, these believers in Samaria have a perceivable sign. 
Something extraordinary has happened that piques Simon's interest. Philip has impressed him, but Peter and John blow him out of the water. He's never seen anything like this, and it's too much for Simon. He's not in on the action. So you see in verse 19, he demands something. He gets very, very brash with them. Verse 19, give this authority to me. See, he treats the apostles as though they're fellow magicians. In the first century, it was very common to interchange with other magicians and negotiate for a fee their tricks to learn what their source of their sorcery was. In other words, they would buy secrets from each other. So when you see him demanding this, he's negotiating a price, treating them like they're magicians. Let me be very, very clear with you, church. Nothing God has is for sale. Nothing God has is for sale. He pours out his blessing. He pours out salvation freely. All you have to do is ask for it. Salvation and blessing are poured out from God freely. You can't buy it. Now, countless thousands are ignorant of that fact. Even today in 2015, two weeks ago, I'm at home. Lori is flying back from South Carolina. She'd been visiting our son and daughter-in-law. Adam and Allison are on staff at a church down there. Lori's coming home, and I had finished three services, and I'm tired. So I thought, well, I'll find something on the Golf Channel and just kind of chill out for a while. You know, those guys never raise their voices, do they? Wow, that's very exciting. He's approaching the 18th hole. How amazing is that? You can totally go to sleep with them talking. But So I'm looking for that. I couldn't find one to watch. And so I start surfing the channels, and I, I hit one of the church channels. And there's this thing called Harvest House. So I thought, well, I'm kind of curious what's going on there. So I flip it on. No kidding. The moment it comes on the screen, there's a guy looking at the screen. He's saying, I'm telling you, God has 250 miracles available for you today. Are you struggling with cancer? God will free you. I guarantee you, God will free you. Do you have a child who's wayward and wandered away from the Lord? Touch your hand to the screen. But before you do that, write me a check for $250. Yeah, I'm I'm not kidding you. I started yelling at the television. I'm glad I didn't have a brick available because I would have destroyed my TV and then I'd be very unhappy. I was so angry at what he was saying. Literally, God will give you your answer if you will give me money. Nothing God has is for sale. Man doesn't have anything to give him. What do you give to the creator of the universe except yourself? That's what he asked for from us. So we come back to this verse where we see that Simon believed in verse 13, and we have to ask ourselves, what is going on with this guy? Verse 13, look at on the screen, Simon himself believed, and if you're still troubled by that verse, you should be. I'm here to tell you this morning, you should be uncomfortable with that statement of this mix between, wait, this guy's acting like a huckster? And yet it says he believed. How can this be? Here's the question for you. Is it possible to make a counterfeit response to God's Spirit? Is it possible to have a false belief this morning? You're looking at somebody who did that. I was in a vacation Bible school program. Summertime, my mom sent me to a church. I'm eight or nine years old, and a bunch of my friends were there. And this leader of the group gets up at the end of the program and invites kids to receive Jesus as their Savior. And so five, four of my friends get up. They come up to the front, and I didn't want to be left out, so I followed them up to the front. And the pastor, in great discernment, walks to the front row, and he looks at all five of us little toeheads, and he says, uh, 
Any chance that one of you is here because your friends came up and you're not really here for the right reason? And we all look at each other and say, no, that's not the reason. Well, he knew our hearts. He knew what was going on in mine. You know, for the next five or six years, I faked it. I pretended. I even went home and told my mom that Jesus was my Savior. But it wasn't real, and I knew that it wasn't real. Age 14 or 15, God really got a hold of my heart and said, Mark, don't play this game. It's either real or it's not. Are you surrendered to me or not? So when you see verse 13 saying Simon believed and yet he's acting like he's acting, what's going on here? Because you're not seeing any transformation. Faith that does not transform you is not saving faith. Let me take you to what James said, Jesus' half-brother, James 2.14. He wrote it this way, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Works meaning evidence. If there's no evidence there. He said this two verses later, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being by itself, meaning it's void. It's empty. Do you know two verses after that? He said, hey, even the demons believe. The demons believe and shudder. Well, the demons believe because they know who Jesus is. And they shake because of it. That's why they respond when he casts them out. But what's the difference? The demons do not hate sin. See, the evidence of salvation, according to the Bible, is that a believer, a true believer, hates sin and loves righteousness. We may continue to fall into sin and commit sin, but we hate it, and we love the things of God and chase after that. So one of the most fearful truths of the entire Bible is that some will indicate that they are believers, that they're saved, when in fact they're really lost, Jesus scared us with some words that he had to say about this. Let me take you to the screen. Jesus' words, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. I mean, is there a scarier passage in the Bible? Not everybody who says, Jesus, I belong to you, really belongs. There's a happy Mother's Day thought, right? That's creepy. That's scary stuff. Jesus amped it up one step further. Matthew 7, 23, he said this. There's some I'm going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's at the judgment. John MacArthur said it this way, that there's, there's a chance that some people are going to come to the gates of heaven only to discover that there's an entrance to hell waiting for them because they were faking it. It false belief. Simon seems to be this kind of individual who's believed externally in the signs and in the power that he's seeing behind the signs, but not the one who is the power. He's going for the miracles. So here's my conclusion. There is a believing that does not save even though it rises to the level of identification with Jesus in the midst of great preaching and powerful miracles. I'll come into the last two verses, but before I do that, I really want you to get this down. Jesus experienced this exact same thing. Celebration called Passover. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's performing miracles. He's speaking about the kingdom of God and who he is. And he's challenging people to believe in him. And Scripture says in John 2.23, many believed, but then we see this in verse 24. But Jesus did not trust himself to them 
because he knew all men and he needed no one to bear witness of man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, Jesus sees into the heart. He knows whether it's legit or not. See, I'm concluding out of this passage, Luke's got a reason for bringing this out. There's thousands of people coming to Christ in Samaria. Why does he center in on Simon? Simon's faith, his believing, quote-unquote, is false. It's false faith. It's dead. You'll see that as Peter responds to him. So let's put this back in context before we get the closing verses from Peter. Simon is a sorcerer. He knows power. He's seen the occultic practices, the dark side, if you will, long before Philip ever arrived on the scene. And he steps back because he sees what Philip is doing. Not only out of Philip is coming powerful teaching, but demons are being cast out of people. People who are born with illnesses are being healed. And Simon knows the power is real. There's something coming out of him that is absolutely what I don't have. It's stronger than the power that I have. So Simon is ready to switch sides. He's ready to identify himself with Jesus, even to the point of trying to buy the power. He wants it that badly. So in context, Philip's pointing to Jesus. Peter and John, they're pointing to Jesus. Simon, he keeps pointing to the power. I want that. So Simon, or Peter's response is absolutely swift, and it's blistering. Look with me at verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. See, you can tell how serious this issue is by the severity of Peter's response. I remember Peter's a fisherman, right? He's always got his foot in his mouth. He's, he's speaking bluntly at many times when he shouldn't speak. You see stories of Peter throughout Scripture where he's saying things he shouldn't say. Well, just remember in context when I show you what he really said here, he's a fisherman, all right? He's a sailor. So he talks like a sailor. J.B. Phillips rendered the exact quote the way that Peter said it this way, to hell with you and your money. Sound like a sailor? Okay. Peter's speaking emphatically. J.B. Phillips is a master in Greek theology. He understands the language perfectly. And he says this is the literal interpretation for what Peter has said back to him. Your heart is not right, man. You're crooked before God. You're embroiled in sin. So at the root of the issue is a heart problem. Every one of us today, every one of us here who are believers in Jesus, at one time were just like that. Our heart was not right before God. We identified that. We felt the conviction. God says, you've got to get right with me. Because God's Word says the human heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. So Peter's calling them out. See, I'm taking this as Simon is not truly converted. He's still in his sin. He still needs to repent according to what Peter's saying here. He's, what the next verse is going to show is he's a slave. He's a slave to the bond of iniquity. Now, you might be thinking this. I just want to help you with this thought. You might be thinking, Mark, I just read in verse 13 that he was baptized. Hear me. Baptism does not save you. That may be the first time some of you have ever heard that. Baptism is an act of obedience. It's something Jesus says that you do to identify yourself with me. It means you belong. It doesn't save you. You can't save yourself. Jesus saved us by what he did on the cross. Baptism is just the evidence that you are saved. 
So what's missing here in Simon's heart? What's not going on that should be going on? There appears to be no heart recognition of sin, meaning he's not turning to Jesus. He's fallen back into his ways, his practices. This is the invitation that Peter lays out before him in verse 22. Therefore, Simon, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Now, Peter's living in the first century. He's reached back a thousand years into Deuteronomy 18 in the Old Testament by using that quote, the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. He's quoting Moses from a thousand years earlier. It's talking about someone who's literally rejected God and chased after idols. That's that bondage of iniquity. You're literally in chains, man. You're like a slave to this stuff. So here's Luke's warning to us. Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit moved him to do that. We have it 2,000 years later. For us to understand this story, we have to look at it this way. There is a false belief. There is a false faith that does not save, even though it surfaces to the level of identifying with Jesus. True preaching, true miracles are taking place, and yet Simon completely misses it. There's no renewal of the heart. There's no transformation of the mind. Now, this ends really sadly because Simon's not so easily persuaded. He's shaken. He's afraid, but he won't go to Jesus himself. Look at how it closes, verse 24. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. See, his response to these really severe words of warning is not encouraging whatsoever. How close can you come and still miss it? We've got an individual who won't go to Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning... You know, you know that he said, you come to me and I will in no way cast you out. There's forgiveness in me. Simon won't even go to him to ask for forgiveness. His concern is to escape the immediate consequences. But we understand that just being sorry for being caught isn't sorrow at all. Paul spoke to this. This is my last verse for you this morning. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. Now, this is Paul after he met Jesus after he's had his name changed from Saul to Paul. And he wrote this to the church in Corinth. He said in this in 2 Corinthians 7, I, meaning Paul, now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. That's what Simon's missing. There's no heart change for the sin going on in his life. There's a desire to be protected, but not to repent of the wickedness. So let me take this one step further for you. Don't grab your car keys yet. Just hear this. One step further is this, by offering to purchase God, literally trying to prostitute the presence of God in his life. He's implied the presence of God is a matter of works, not a matter of grace. We know the opposite is true, right church? It's by grace you have been saved, not of works, lest any one of us could boast. See, Simon's got it backwards. That's why I can so emphatically say it looks like he's totally missing this. How horrible would it be if salvation could be bought and sold? 
That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. As a gift, right, church? As a gift to us. Let's praise God for that gift that we have. I'm going to ask you in closing to pray for two things over the next couple of weeks. And if you're keeping notes this morning, maybe you'd write these down so you remember to pray about them. But here, here's the first one. I would ask you to pray that God will continue to entrust us with more individuals who need to hear the good news of his word. I believe that God is growing this church because he does trust us. God keeps sending individuals who need to know that there's forgiveness in Jesus, that there's a brand new beginning with him. So I would ask you to pray that God would continue to send us individuals and us to those individuals. Everybody doesn't just have to come here to church to hear that. I mean, we interact with people throughout the course of the week, right? So pray about that, that God would continue to bring individuals and then he would take us to them. Here's the second thing. You know, for about a year now, we've been talking about a real estate issue because of the fact that the church is growing and we've got to do something about the facilities here. We're we're outgrowing our space. And because we're outgrowing our space, we've been looking for what's next. Well, God's been stirring the pot again. The, The waters are broiling and we don't have answers yet, but I hope within the next two weeks that God's going to give us some very clear information that we can share with you. So would you be praying about that? That, that new thing that's on the horizon, that God would give us His wisdom because we don't want to get ahead of God, right, church? We don't want to do that. We want to stay following Him very, very closely, but we also want to be proactive at the same time. So pray about those two things. Would you do that? And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to close this service with praying for you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for these individuals, and I ask that Your blessing would come heavily upon them for taking time to discover You to encounter you and and read and learn more about you, to understand your nature and your character. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding, especially as we take on this week that's ahead of us. Allow us to move confidently through the week and to speak boldly about Jesus, but also to remember this amazing gift of grace that you've given us that others seem to misunderstand. You can't be bought. The price has already been paid and you paid for it with your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for salvation in him and in him alone. It's in his mighty name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.